ask you this question, Wyatt. The ultimate question. Is a hot dog a sandwich? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) I am... uh, I'm going to go with yes. It's a it's a pseudo pseudo hamburger. <laughs> it's a pseudo sandwich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It actually might be a pseudo sandwich. Like a, I think a hot dog and like a calzone and those sorts of things might be like pseudo sandwiches. Yeah, where it's like I think the bread. I think you need two pieces of bread. If you had a hot dog, like a hot dog weenie. Yeah, just like on some like white bread, that would be a sandwich. Yeah, which I used to do that. A single I think, piece of white yeah. bread. <laughs> oh, you just wrap it. Yeah, like a like a dog. I meant two pieces. <laughs> like oh, you did. Yeah. Well, I used to. Actually, I've never done that, a, but when I was a kid, I would cut it into fours and lay it on white bread and make a sandwich. Okay. So they would lay next to each other. The four. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So that was literally a hot dog sandwich. <laughs> yeah, that is a hot dog. So I think that's not a hot dog either. That's a that's a pseudo hot dog. Yeah. So if a hot dog is a pseudo sandwich, oh, yeah. then that's a pseudo hot dog. Yeah. So that's even <laughs> even further from the truth. Than, like, no, I mean I really like this. I really like this episode. Um, yeah, same. I really like this script, and I really wish it had been a real episode of the show because. Yeah, me too. Like I, I love the X Files. Um, I mean. We've talked about it. It's come up a couple of times, and like I've said stuff about how it would it wouldn't be fun now because Mulder would be a QAnon guy, and <laughs> you know that the show got worse when it left Vancouver. And I'm like, oh, I, all that stuff is definitely true. And like the the return, I was thinking about this recently that like the X Files and Twin Peaks both came back in like twenty, I think twenty sixteen and twenty seventeen. Yeah. And it's just funny how fucking useless the X-Files return was. Oh, yeah. And how I, really awesome the Twin out. Peaks one was. Yeah, yeah. Especially because the X-Files and Twin Peaks, oh, I mean, not just because David Duchovny was in both playing an FBI agent, but they always felt like the, twi- like the Twin Peaks was obviously a precursor to the tone and approach of the X-Files. Yeah. Um, made sort of as a more normal, you know, procedural type show, but that, you know, you feel like, you feel like fucking, I mean, I know we don't see her originally, you know, but like the Cooper and Diane and Mulder and Scully are kind of a mirrors of each other, you know, and that, uh, and all that. And so then it's just kind of funny that they both chose to come back with sort of, you know, yeah, much 25 years later or something like new seasons. And one of them, you're like Twin Peaks, the return is the best Twin Peaks. Yeah. Oh yeah. And the new X-Files just made me be like, why did this show not end with Thomas Ligotti's episode? <laughs> In 1998, <laughs> like this has gone on too long. Maybe, maybe David Benatar is right, <laughs> and we should just—he's <laughs> not right for his reasons. He's right because the X Files no. got bad. Yeah, in in the proper context of ending shows, I'm, I'm sometimes an anti-natalist. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if 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 natalism is like that, every show gets a spin-off. Yeah, you know that yeah. every show should birth a new yeah. show. That then I'm def- I definitely have anti-natalist leanings in TV development <laughs> land. That uh, we did not need Joni loves Chachi. Happy Days was fine. Mm. Uh, we didn't need what other spin-offs we got. Oh God, like late period. I love Lucy with 
like when Ricky, when uh, Desi Arnaz isn't there anymore. Oh, and it's in color. Fuck, that's weird. Actually, that kind of creeps me out. <laughs> it's wrong. Yeah, it's like, like wrong. They, they it moved, feels wrong. Yeah, it's like they moved to fucking like Albany or something, and they live in a house. And like for some reason, Fred and Ethel moved. I think Fred's dead or something. Like it just feels like. Oh wow, what is wrong with this? Like yeah, why did you? Yeah. Oh, Frazier is returning. Oh yeah, and, and it, but it's not in Seattle. It's anymore. not in Seattle, and it's like none of the same characters. It's so it's just gonna be bad. I think <laughs> it's gonna be really bad. Yeah. Like, I mean, okay, that's a rare one. Like, so so Frasier was a spinoff of Cheers, which was actually a good spinoff. Yeah, that's a good spinoff. Yeah. And I was thinking too, like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. Oh right, yeah. I like Laverne and Shirley. What other? I, I, there's probably a couple others that are decent. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, thinking about like, because I mentioned Gabo um, <laughs> from The Simpsons, that like, you know, yeah, the X Files and The Simpsons, that it's it's maybe it's actually less like an anti-natalist thing, like we shouldn't birth new shows, but just that like I'm I'm like pro euthanasia for <laughs> yeah. shows. <laughs> yeah, that some like we should take The Simpsons off life support. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's not even the same show. It's a totally different show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's just I always have this thing when I I you know every seems like every year I go back and I rewatch the first, like, eight years of The Simpsons. Yeah. And it's kind of the same thing with The X-Files right up until when they leave. Well, it's really like the movie, the, the um, Fight the Future, that first movie. And then the season after that, they I think, is when they move production to L.A. Mm. And it's like a similar thing. Like, fuck, up until this point, it's just so good. Yeah. Like, such a strong vibe. And even though, like, not every Golden Era Simpsons episode is is solid gold and not every golden era X-Files episode is solid gold. The ones that aren't so great are still a part of the larger awesome picture of the right. the show for those years. And then it's just like, I don't understand how people, I mean, I get uh, the simple answer is probably just that it's hard to turn down the checks, but that like, how do you not get that you're just ruining <laughs> what you made? Yeah. Like, do you remember Millennium? Yeah, and I I remember watching it when I was younger, and I don't remember what it's like though. Same. Uh, it was a, it was it was. I, I don't know if you'd call that. It's not like a literal spinoff of X Files, but it's like it's a show that takes on the spirit of X Files, like um, like uh, Twilight Zone and uh, The Outer Limits or something. You know, like they share they share a similar spirit, but they're like two different shows. Is that the case with Millennium? I know it's. I it is in some way or another made by Chris Carter. Oh, he it might is. Okay. just have been like executive producer or something. It, it might've been oh, like right. that, yeah. like from the mind of Chris Carter or something. Because yeah. then there was also the super short lived lone gunman show. Oh yeah. That ended yeah. carrying right. on from our, our Radiohead discussion was another one of the weird things of something predicting nine 11. Because the oh, yeah. yeah, there was Did it? the episode of that it. show that was supposed to air the week of 9-11 was about terrorists hijacking planes and crashing them into skyscrapers. <laughs> like holy shit. To the point where there was yeah. some kind of I mean, there was definitely some like Fox or whatever network directive to be like, yeah, you can't fucking air this. <laughs> like Yeah. But but yeah. where holy you shit. know, it's one of the most I don't know why I, I don't seek these things out, but I just have a ton of like the weird 9-11 precognitive things <laughs> rattling around. And that's yeah. one of the most like uh <laughs> inducing ones. 
just so so crazy that it, it like the synchronicity of that. Uh, but I mean, I I don't know. But at such an event. I mean, that was a, a the whole world witnessed that event. Like it was just a crazy thing for the world to happen in this world. Was nine eleven, you know, and it totally changed and shifted things. So the actual like atmosphere. I mean, not to say that I understand it. If if psychic things precipitated it, you know, or just put out the the tendril is, is the tendrils the correct word? Yeah, uh, yeah. And then we actually caught vibrations of it before it even happened. You know, <laughs> who knows? It's just such a crazy event. I know one of the because this comes up like you know I I mean I have all like there's these and like a bunch of oh, other. Yeah books in here that you know all about time time stuff and and all that and one of the things that seems to come up in pretty much all of them at least all the ones written since 9-11 is that uh some lab i i know some part of this was going on through princeton i forget the, the name of the actual like governing body or whatever but that at some point in the 90s they had set this this organization had set up a bunch of random number generators this is sound do you know where I'm going with this? Like, no. This research organization, in in some attempt to see, like, okay, is there anything to do with like precognition or sort of that aspect of of the paranormal and psychic abilities and things like that? They were like, okay, so one of the ways that we could test that is by setting up random number generators and seeing if anything, seeing if their randomness is diverted during any kind of point where somebody would be saying like because okay you get these disasters like i think at the time they were talking about like you know the oklahoma city bombing or or um earthquake the the northridge earthquake or things like that that people would be saying oh i totally had all these dreams in the week leading up to the oklahoma city bombing about uh buildings getting blown up or about a guy with a van full of explosives or you know whatever and then people would say okay like, even if I believe you, you're still only able to tell me this after the thing has happened. Like, right. you couldn't tell me what was going to happen. You know, it had to happen for you to recognize whatever. So then somebody came up with this idea of like, okay, so clearly what we're talking about is some kind of deviation from the presumed, like, randomness of reality. Right, because you have to think probability. There's a number of people in the world, you know, billions of people in the world, someone is there's could be a high probability that someone's going to have a dream about exactly you know this event happening yeah and this was done i forget who but that this this experiment came up exactly because certain areas of of discourse or whatever were saying exactly that that like yeah there's no such thing as prophecy or precognition or or predestined uh not predestination like um taking a peek around the corner like that doesn't happen yeah what we're talking about is you know there's however many billion people we all dream every night and also horrible stuff happens every day. Yeah. And so like statistically, someone is going to dream a real thing every once in a while. And so then this lab was like, all right, well, let's test that. Let's like, that's sure makes sense, but let's see if that's actually the case. And one of the things that they yeah. they kept finding was that so they did this by setting up all these, these random number generators that would just constantly run fixed rate, spitting out random random numbers. And what they discovered was that when big things would happen, like, you know, okay, the Oklahoma City bombing or or a big hurricane or, a, you know, something like that, 
that the number generators would stop generating numbers randomly, that they would start generating like sequential numbers or like multiples of each other. Like uh, some kind of quantum entanglement or something? Yeah, like that something was suddenly like, okay, wait a minute, it's not random. And so then the thing was that uh, with around 9-11, the number generators stopped behaving randomly for like three days. Wow. That where previously it would be like, whoa, this thing stopped behaving randomly for like a couple hours. Yeah. And it was, and then it's like, oh, because there was like a big hurt, a volcano erupted and something like that. But that when it was 9-11, it was like, it started on like September 9th and it went till like the 12th or the 13th or something where it was just like, something is about to happen. Yeah. Because this number generator is going like one, two, three, four, five, like. Dude, well that... <laughs> What's crazy about that is like, you know, the Ulam spiral, the like, it's, um, it's like a visual representation of prime numbers. Okay. I've probably seen this. So it's, it, it spirals out. Like if you, if you take like a piece of uh, graph paper and you, you draw out, basically you color in, you go sequentially in a spiral, each square wrapping around itself, you know, in a counterclockwise motion. And then you just color in all the prime number spots. Okay. And if you just keep if you just keep doing that to a huge amount and you zoom out, you have the Ulam spiral which produces a clear weird pattern. It's like kind of not super symmetrical, but it it suggests symmetry in this really wild way and we uh, we don't know why, <laughs> you know? It's like noise, but just taking the ran- what seems like the randomness of prime numbers and putting them in some kind of pattern that you can view it produces this 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 strange looking uh pattern it, it looks it looks like there's something more to it it's really wild but when you were describing the random number generator i was like oh this would be a good thing for ai right oh yeah if we take ai to study just the ran we take these random number generators and it's generating random numbers and it's constantly going and then we have AI study this, these numbers, constantly. And then when these world events happen and these se- like seemingly sequential s- numbers appear, we could have like an AI dedicated to just finding visual patterns in it or something, yeah. And then seeing what happens that could that would, could be very interesting. I find that much more interesting than pretty much anything anybody talks about using AI for. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Most of which is like ways to make money or yeah, right, things of course, like that. Of course. Like yeah. the, I was just flipping because because two of the weirdest ones, I mean, this one is for sure the weirdest, but like um, from this ultimately very flawed and unconvincing book, Time Loops by Eric Wargo. Mm. Um, unconvincing for the, okay, I'm not going to get into that. But um, one thing he says, Consider another coincidence related to 9-11, a bronze sculpture from 1999 by Jamaican-American artist Michael Richards called Tar Baby versus St. Sebastian. It's one of a series of sculptures Richards created in the late 1990s in which he depicted himself as one of the Tuskegee Airmen, African-American aviators who distinguished themselves during and after World War II, yet were still subject to segregation and racism. In the Tar Baby sculpture, Richards depicts himself in bronze standing rigidly erect, one might say tower-like, in an aviator suit and helmet, being pierced by numerous planes. Similar to how early Christian martyr St. Sebastian is depicted in countless Renaissance paintings as a pincushion for arrows. 
The eerie detail here is that Richards died on 9-11 in his studio, which was on the 92nd floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center, where he had spent the night. So he (laughs) literally got pierced by a plane after making a sculpture of exactly that. And then the other one is... There is, for instance, the case of retired art professor named David Mandel in the London suburb of Sudbury Hill. A 2003 British TV documentary profiled Mandel and his astonishing record of seemingly precognitive dreams, which he depicts the next morning in drawings or watercolors and then photographs under the calendar clock at his local bank to provide a timestamp and forestall accusations of fakery or faulty memory. On September 11th, 1996, five years to the day before the attacks in Manhattan, he reported awakening, awakening from a terrifying dream and sketched his vision of two tall towers crashing down in a disaster that he said felt to him like an earthquake. Six months later, he had the dream again and painted it in watercolor. The towers in his painting are flanked by shorter buildings with a pyramidal top. Nine months after that dream, he sketched a third dream in which two twin-engine planes crashed into a pair of buildings from opposite directions. Mandel recalled feeling terrible shock, quote, shuddering and shaking, on the day of the terror attacks in Manhattan when he saw his pictures on television. So there's, mm. yeah, and then because yeah. of his method of date stamping them with the photographs, we were able to ver- verify the coincidental date of the first dream. And So there's yeah. a fair amount of these. Um, Coming back to terror. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. Just real quick, because <laughs> oh, no, just on the okay. opposite page is the episode of the Lone, the Lone Gunman that I was thinking of. Was Oh, shit. Okay. On March 4th, 2001, the pilot episode of a spinoff of the X-Files called The Lone Gunman centered on a government plot to hijack a jetliner by remote control and fly it into the World Trade Center. <laughs> <laughs> so not only did it anticipate the actual thing, but it anticipated 9-11 truthers. It anticipated people yeah, saying cow. that it was a conspiracy yeah. by the government. Well, did people get it from that? That's a good did question, know, actually. Was that available? Yeah. Yeah. Because okay, because I was slightly wrong. It says so that episode did air six months before the attacks. Oh, it did. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Anyway, in particularly the World Trade Center, right? Yeah, it says the World Trade Jeez. Center. I'm, I'm going to go find that episode, dude. I but, we I have um, to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, so the the World Trade Center is was a significant building. Uh, so it's it, why they picked it. Yeah, I mean this that that narrows down possibilities like probability for a building. You know, instead of flying flying the planes in like you know Sears Tower Chicago, which I don't know the name of what Sears Tower is now. It's but, yeah, it's not the Sears no, Tower anymore, is it? But to it? us, it's, it will always be the Sears Tower. <laughs> I can't speak for all Chicagoans. Like in White Sox. No, that's like when I, when I found out last year or two years ago that they changed the name of the Staples Center to the fucking Crypto.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, nah, man, it's the Staples Center. That's like White Sox in Chicago play at Comiskey Stadium. And it's not, it hasn't been Comiskey for like decades. But <laughs> but, all, but uh, it's like US it Cellular Field or some bullshit, you know? It's just like companies yeah, name. It sucks, yeah. Even though Comiskey is literally just the same thing because it's the name of an industry, you know? Uh, well, it's the same. Like, it's not like I like like Staples is best. Yeah. Fucking, you know, printer store. Like, but it is a simpler, more catchy name. Um, it's a better name. Yeah. Plus, it was named that when it was built. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, it's so been the Staples Center right. since '98 yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But I was gonna, I was gonna say something because, um, and I, this is just a fun sort of me devising a fun way to look at you know, tarot, uh, because when I give readings to people. A lot of times they're like, well, I don't want fortune telling, you know? And I'm like, well, it's not, it's not like fortune telling. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen, right? But it, I, so I was like trying to deal with that because 
tarot and astrology have this weird divinatory part to them where it can sort of touch upon future events in some weird way. You know, whether or not you're into that, you know, is up to you. But I was thinking about like, what would be a good analogy for this? And I I was thinking about like momentum, the momentum of a car. If you're in a car going 90 miles per hour, there's a high probability that you're not going to take a sharp right turn, you know, because it's just, it's just not, I mean, you could, but you probably flip the car, you know, it's very dangerous. So there's a, a certain amount of probability that suggests that if you do turn right, it's going to be a long trajectory. You know, there's like, there is a sequence of events that can almost lead up to future events through momentum, maybe. And this is, a, obviously, this is, I've, I've not studied this formally. This is just me being, you know, stoned in my bedroom thinking like, oh, what's up with this? You know, <laughs> So take it what you will. You know, it's a flawed, flawed theory. But it does seem like those things are possible that like currents in life can suggest major events, particularly if an event, if an event is a powerful big one. Um, I'm trying to think of like a good analogy because obviously we all, we always think of time as a linear, you know, point A to point B kind of thing. Um, But if it's not, if it's more liquid, like, like water in the same way, like if a droplet hits water, ripples go out in all sides, maybe like an inverse droplet is a, the occurrence of an event and ripples go out in both directions, you know, and people actually sense the ripple of this event before it even happens. I mean, again, this is me just being a stoned bedroom philosopher, <laughs> you know, but but it's it's interesting to me. It's like, it's an interesting concept to play around with, maybe. I think it is. I mean, maybe to, to just once and for all dispel any pretense that I am a, um, that I am not a whack job. <laughs> um, it's for, fun to be a whack from a, job. Let's well, yeah. Let's like, just admit it. Ligotti's right. All there is yeah. at the heart of existence is play, and I am playing better than, yeah, yeah. than the Benatars and the <laughs> Schopenhauers and the yeah. whoever. Um, Schopenhauer had fun hair, at least. But uh, you, do, you, do you remember what he looked like? He was totally bald, I I and then he, he had like, like, yeah. like both of the clown hair. Oh, he like went full on the side. He, yeah, he was totally bald, like to the back there. But then he like yeah grew it way out, and like in the one photo oh, of him that move. exists, it's like comb. It's clearly like combed out. <laughs> Hell yeah, it's dude! Like, Damn, maybe I should go for that in my old age. I kind of love I get crazy that. eyebrows. Yeah, because I, I always think about this. Like, there's this metal band. I forgot the fucking metal band, but it's like the lead singer guitarist guy is a bald dude, but the side hair is like down to his shoulder. <laughs> is it is it Joe Preston from the Melvins? No, 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 no. Okay, no. I don't know the band. I, I was I never really got into him, but I was just like, man. You know, kudos for that choice. <laughs> He's like wanted to be a metalhead. He wanted long hair. Yeah, but he was a bald. <laughs> still headband, yeah, yeah, but like yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking about like Joe Preston from was in the Melvins for a while, and then like Thrones. He was on like one or two Sun Records, like Seattle mm. that generation, like Seattle metal grunge guy. Um, he has like a super thick beard, like big beard, and he's bald here long hair everywhere else and he puts it in in like braids 
That's and like pigtail braids. <laughs> Dude, bold. And then you see yeah. pictures of him with like some fucking BC Rich, like double neck bass. Yeah. Or something. And then these gray pigtails and then bald Whoa. and a big beard. And you're like, Whoa. That doesn't look good, but I feel like that dude is. I love this dude. Yeah. I love yeah. this energy. Yeah. We should all have that much self confidence. See, a part of me, as a bald dude, a part of me, like, I'm probably just going to have a shaved head the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, Brian Eno. Like, yeah, the Brian Eno look is, is respectable. I, I, but like, um, part of me does kind of like the idea of when you get older, you don't have to like, you don't have to care about being sexy <laughs> because you you just can't, you can't be sexy in the same way. <laughs> so you kind of like are opened up to all these possibilities of just getting so wacky with your style. You know? Yeah. And you could do the Schopenhauer hair and just get the crazy side action going on, you know? Yep. And I'm like, dude, fuck yeah. Like, cause I might be getting wild eyebrows and stuff at one point. Let me just be a freak. Yeah. A freak hairball without anything on top. It might be kind of fun. I totally think that would be like, <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great idea. I mean, and, or just be like young Brian Eno rather than older Brian Eno, like rock oh, right, music yeah. Brian Eno. <laughs> yeah, right. Where he's just this mullet thing, like, you know. Yeah. Um, the, the thinning hair mullet. I totally think, I mean. Yeah. It, it looked pretty it good, though. Because yeah. I feel like all this stuff is just confidence. It's all like. Oh, absolutely. Are you. Absolutely are you projecting like an air of confidence? Then we're, the rest of us are going to go with you. Yeah. You know? Right. And I feel that cause I I'm for some reason of all, all of the things that I am lack confidence in <laughs> the one thing that I do not care about at all is my bald head. <laughs> like I really don't give a shit, but it's like, it's funny because I have friends who are losing hair and they're like, fuck, you know, they're like going through legitimate crises and I'm like, dude, who cares? <laughs> like, who gives a fuck? But I don't know. Like, I got a, I got a fairly uh, symmetrical head, so I can pull no, it you off do, really well. You do yeah. look good. Like, yeah, it it suits you, and it you're not. I mean, not to body shame anybody, but you're not one of those guys who's <laughs> like weird wrinkly head or like. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes you see that, and it's like, Ugh. yeah, strange things going on. Yeah. Um, what was I actually going to say? Oh, so. It, to to dispel any pretense that I am sane <laughs> and um, <laughs> that I am a reasonable person, uh, back to the time stuff. I I have alluded to you know time slip experiences in the past, but a few months ago I willfully went back in time. Um, I I did a magical operation to go back twenty years. Oh yeah, and it worked. Wow, and it worked in a way that. Like the first, I've done it a couple of times and it works. The first time I did it, it worked like really well and it lasted for like, like the whole night. And then the other times I've tried, it hasn't worked quite as well. And I don't mean, you know, because I just like, this is, I mean, of course, this is where anybody uh, hostile to this kind of thing is just going to be like, right there, it's bullshit. Is that like, I didn't leave the house. So I stayed in the house. So I have no, it, it wasn't like I went outside and was like, sir, what year is it? He was like, why, it's 2003, young man. Like, <laughs> and it's Christmas Day. Like, it's Merry Christmas right, yeah. to everyone. Like, it wasn't some like fucking Christmas story. That's not what that's, that's not what that's called. That's the movie where the kid gets his oh, tongue. Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
it's not like that kind of thing. Um, yeah, but the because we're kind of also getting into like Ligotti, like I can't tell you until your brain has also been rewired to experience it. Yeah, no, absolutely. But that it was like absolutely clear. I'll, what I'll say is that it became through that experience absolutely clear to me that the past and the future are already there, that the future is already here, mm-hmm. and that the past is still here, and that it really is like a it's like an onion layer thing you know that it's yeah. like we're we're here and we experience the past as receding behind us or whatever and the future yeah. coming in from in front of us and that that's probably never going to stop in like your present experience but that what yeah. happened what i did showed me that it's like oh no it's all still there and you can access it you can you can yeah. go and i i've only tried this going backwards Part of that is fear <laughs> um, that I sort of already know what's back there. Yeah. I don't really know what's <laughs> up front, but it yeah. was um, very, yeah. So that happened. Dude, I mean, that's that's sick. Uh, and I can see it being kind of frightening to some people to experience that, you know? But to me, it's like exciting. It was great. <laughs> to me, it's, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was really like, this is again an area where somebody could say, ha, there, it's bullshit. Is You know, I found it very reassuring. Yeah. Um, I found it like, like, oh, it is all still there. And like, like I yeah. can't go back and live there. Like, it's gonna wear off. It's, it's like, it is, a, it is a form of awareness where I'm like, okay, no, I am still in 2023, but I am also in like 2003. And like, yeah. I'm, I'm aware of both. I'm experiencing both, but I know that like I am anchored in 2023 doing this. And that, yeah. So that there was no sense yeah. of like, oh, I can just like pack up and like li- go back and live then or anything like yeah. that. And, but I still did find it very reassuring because it was like that sort of like nothing is lost mm, kind of, yeah. kind of thing. And so I, I bring this up not just because we're talking and it comes up, but like that, that and then another experience that I've had, which, I, I get the sense it's also probably very common, but it it tripped me out. Maybe you've had this experience. Have you ever had like no self? Yeah, uh, um, I think so. Um, well, I had like very significant experiences of observing myself, like in mirrors, you know, um, where it was like a detachment. Um, like yeah, like I observed myself as as a thing, but I wasn't myself. Okay, observing it, like I was observing Dave as this detached entity kind of thing. Right. Um, is that what you're describing? That's sort of it. I mean, I've also had like psychedelic trips that yeah. kind of gone gone to that zone briefly. This know? was, this. I mean, yeah, I've had those too, but like, no, this was, just, it's like a meditating thing mm. um, where it w- basically was like, and this is relevant to Ligotti, um, but where I... First, I went away where just sitting, like just in, you know, eyes closed, like meditation oh. space, it was like, I'm, yeah. I am gone. And I don't mean like my body, but I mean like my entire ego self is like, oh, that didn't exist. That like it, mm. it was like, that's gone. That was just a, an illusion. And then uh, yeah. the awareness of it being an illusion also disappeared. Yeah. This is it's like, um, I'm not, this is like a samadhi kind of idea. 
I know I I also have not because I'm not a Buddhist. I I know that there are Buddhist words yeah. for what this is, and I just don't know what they are. There is um the in the equinox there are writings on um yoga. Yeah. Which has a lot of these kind of words. And that I I've had similar experiences. I've never had the detachment of myself, like, but I've had I've had similar experiences where I've witnessed time. Mm-hmm in a way that was very outside of my normal perception of time. Do you, can I explain that? Yeah, no, please. Real quick. So this was a significant thing, and I actually wrote down in my journal because I was like, this is significant. Um, but it was one time I was going to a friend's, like I was going down to a friend's place in Hyde Park. But I, I live in Humboldt Park uh, in Chicago. So I had to take the train, and I was sitting in the, on the Red Line station um, and across from me on the, the tube, the underground tube, uh, was a, the poster for Apple eye, uh, ear pods. Okay. And I was looking at the ear pod poster. Um, and all of a sudden, like I could see, uh, the influence of times starting with the conception of Apple with Steve jobs. Like I could see Apple being born as, uh, as a concept, as not like a company. It wasn't this like superficial, like, oh, business is is made. It was like, I could see the energy of the thing being conceived by this, the like the minds of these select small groups of people. And then I could see the rippling out of that energy over time. And simultaneously, when I saw the time, the rippling of that energy become what is now Apple, it wasn't seeing it. So I wasn't seeing it as, again, words escape you, you know, I wasn't seeing it as just the company Apple. I was seeing it as an energetic entity uh, that grew, a creature almost, that Apple is this creature that grew out of this, the, like the psych, like the, the spirit or psychology of these few people. I could see it rippling outward. And then I could see uh, the source of intent from Steve Jobs. You know, like I could see him uh, in a pure state making motions through life that like, again, not in a capital, capitalistic sense, but in, in a, as a person moving energy, like moving water, yeah. like sloshing around in a bathtub. I could see him moving willful energy in this atmosphere in this world and producing waves of of influence which caused where i was sitting in that moment staring at the airpod sign <laughs> and it sounds again it's like people being skeptical it's like yeah you just had you had a really trippy moment you know and it's like yeah no no, no but that was significant that was a significant like experience to me and i and i think that it relates to some sort of yoga concept of like probably something really low in the rungs of like experience. But I, I was like, that was significant. And, and it's hard to, it's hard to put into words, of course, because this all happens in an instant. It happens in like, for me, it happened in like, yeah, you know, milliseconds of me thinking this, but then sensing it and feeling it and seeing it in my mind's eye, like a motion picture, you know, this like almost synesthetic experience yeah. of watching influence happen through time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but go on. Yeah. So I don't know if that relates. No, to that, that, I mean, it, it does in, 
it wasn't as much that I was like trying to talk about no self, but that I'm thinking about like, so what we've in what we've both just done in like just trying to describe difficult to describe uh, sort of extraordinary experiences or whatever, I feel like to, to relate this back to Ligotti and to, you know, I've, I've made fun of David Benatar a lot, but I've also mentioned Stephen Norquist who wrote a book called The Haunted Universe. Um, so it's time to make fun of him a little bit. Um, <laughs> no, but he, you know, his, his idea, cause okay. So he wrote a book called the haunted universe, which like conspiracy against the human race and the trouble with being David Benatar is, you know, a nonfiction book. And, but specifically Norquist's thing is, Hey, so I was a guy like a lot of young people out there who thought that getting into meditation and spirituality was a good thing to do. So I started meditating and doing all these yogic, Buddhist, breathwork, whatever, pranayama, this and that type practices that everybody at the crystal store said was a good, fun, wholesome thing to do. And what it led me to was horror. (laughs) And specifically, so he described, he says the haunted universe, you know, that that's what this is, that the, it's better put, and it has to be a reference to this because- it, it just the timing of it, but there's a coil song called the universe is a haunted house. It has to be a reference mm. to that. The coil phrasing is better. Um, but this idea that like he describes when he tries to describe his, his indarkenment, <laughs> he, he says like, imagine that you're walking through a house and you know, you go through the corridors and you see all the rooms and they're, they have their uses, the living room, the dining room, the bedroom or whatever, and all the symbols of the bed and the couch and the television and the kitchen. It tells you what each room is for, but the things aren't happening there. And you walk through this empty mansion and then finally you get to a mirror and you look into the mirror expecting to see yourself and there is no self to see. And this is the true state of the universe or whatever. And so, yeah, I've had that experience. <laughs> And I don't say that to mean like, oh, I, like I'm special. But the thing, I think one of the things that I find very funny about antinatalists, this isn't limited to antinatalists, extreme pessimists, but because we're talking about that whole world, the thing that I find funny is that these guys who write these books about this stuff always present their revelations like they're the only person who's ever had this revelation. Mm. Stephen Norquist writes this like, I'm the only one who's ever seen the universe as the haunted house. And I'm like, no, because Coyle saw it because they wrote a song about it. But also I saw it. Yeah. And I'm just some fucking guy in Canada. Why would I also see the deep, dark truth of existence, I feel like people always yeah. present it like I have this, I've seen this thing that no one else has seen and that they're they're almost enabled in so doing because it's difficult to describe. Yeah. But then the thing that's always funny is you get somebody like me who reads The Haunted Universe and is like, yeah, no, you're totally right. Yeah. Except in your conclusions. Mm. <laughs> because again, I mean, this is, I got this off the shelf, but you know, the any of my real knowledge, practical knowledge of Buddhist stuff comes from this. Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha by Daniel Ingram, which is a giant fucking tome with very small print. Um, And, oh, and I opened it. And I opened it to the relevant page. That's weird. (laughs) But yeah, basically... um, When you you go through... What this guy does in this book is is break down kind of the, the stages of progress through, you know, Buddhist enlightenment and all that and kind of 
yeah. talk about them in like your regular language and okay, you know, this kind of thing follows that and and all that stuff. And so the stuff that gets described by say me in the no self experience or Stephen Norquist in the haunted universe thing, or a lot of this, like actually a lot of people's psychedelic experiences factor into this where you have, if you're like me and you only ever have bad trips that a lot of it gets, you know, it's, it's sort of addressed like in this amount of the book. And then there's all this <laughs> left. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think it's funny, like this, this, I just think it's interesting because like I can, try to explain my weird time travel thing or the no self thing. And you can talk about your seeing the entire genesis of some larger entity within the ad for AirPods and yeah, whatever. And that it can seem like we can both keep saying, man, I'm not getting it across. I'm not words. Don't do it justice or whatever, but I can, we can tell that we've both seen the thing. Yeah. So when I'm, even if I'm still saying, man, it's hard to put into words, I don't take the arrogant step of saying the reason it's hard to put into words is because I am the only one who has seen this. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like that's the thing that, that is the thing that Ligotti does like the rest of these guys. And the reason that it is okay when Ligotti does it is because he does it in very effective horror stories. Yeah. Is because he does it as the narrator of a scary story. Right. And so then taking on the supremely arrogant perspective of I have seen the truth and anyone who disagrees with me is a fool. Well, yeah, putting it into a work of fiction allows people to experience it because he probably, he genuinely experiences these things. I absolutely uh, believe him. I do not yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I believe all of these yeah. people. I believe Banatar and Norquist and Yeah, it, it just comes down to, uh, it comes down to... Um, what is the word, you know, how they, how they share it with the world, you know, whether or not we agree it, but like a work of art is an appropriate way to share these things because it allows people to have their own experience. And and it's, it's a hard thing when you're getting into mysticism and the occult and stuff, it's very hard to even talk to like-minded people about your experiences because they're going to have a different, a completely different language for it. You know, an internal language, because and like again, this stuff transcends language itself. It's the it's this internal experience, and we could have overlapping experiences, but like even our overlapping experiences, you know, we might only get slivers of overlap because we're on our own paths. You know, um, so like clearly with the occult and um, mysticism and things like that, because it's so open you know, there's always the big danger of like snake oil salesmen or, or like cult leaders, you know, which is different than occult, obviously. Uh, uh, but like cult leaders trying to brainwash you, you know, and trying to just take control. That is a, that's a, that's a scary thing whenever anything transcendental comes into play. So I, it seems like rule of thumb for that stuff is, if you are allowed to take your own journey at the pace that you want to take it at, then it's probably probably a better a better thing to observe than uh, than having someone say, "I can show you exactly what will happen," because they cannot. And you see this with like I, you see in like classical like Taoist Buddhist teachers they they take a huge step back. <laughs> it seems like. And they let you 
come to the concepts, which is the way that it, I think it should happen, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there there is something I'm I'm aware in the... Have I mentioned that I'm self-aware? <laughs> that I know all the... <laughs> I, I can anticipate all the charges against whatever we're going to say. Um, <laughs> no, but that there's... One of the things that's that that occurs to me, like in listening to what you were just saying, is that like, okay, there's something about we're we're, we're talking us, Ligotti, Norquist, whoever, we're talking about things, and we're saying we keep saying it's so hard to put into words, you know, I it's unspeakable, it's unnameable, or whatever, and that the thing that's occurring to me is this thought that like, yeah, maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is that there is a that there is a spot where speech fails, and this is where I'm saying I you know have I mentioned that I'm self aware because we've just spent three hours talking about this, so I know then coming to the conclusion that like we should talk less is <laughs> <laughs> is you know a bit silly, but that there's a part of this that it's like it it almost feels to me like and I am very guilty of this because okay. Uh, more, autobiog- more, more autobiography and biography of Thomas Ligotti. There is an interview in the Thomas Ligotti Reader where he addresses basically that when he was a teenager, he took a lot of acid, had a really bad experience, and never came back from it. Mm. My life can also be described in the same terms, <laughs> just with mushrooms instead of acid. Yeah. That I also have an experience of, you know, being a teenager and saying, whoa, dude, fucking trip out, brah, let's take some mushrooms, it's gonna be so sick. And then being like, oh no. And, <laughs> you know, on some level, 20 something years later, being like, that's never, that's never stopped. You know, and, and that, that you yeah. know, so when I look at the stuff like you're talking about, like, you know, you're rewiring your brain, the unspeakable, the whatever, I'm like, yeah, I had that experience. That's exactly what landed me in this spot too. So then, I read this interview with Ligotti where he's like, yeah, I took a lot of acid (laughs) and here we are. Then I say, okay, so I do know where you are. We are in the same place or we have been to the same place. Like, Mm -hmm. so now you cannot tell me that it is unspeakable or unnameable or or it is those things, but I've been there. And so, yes, it is, it is unspeakable, but we can be there together. And that it starts to feel to me like then, and this is where I'm saying I'm guilty of this like Ligotti, like anybody else, that it's very hard to bear the silence of that that place that you you get into, that you get to this spot that does Mm. feel like it is beyond language, it is beyond reason, it is beyond whatever. And that there is a, there can be a horror to that, that then you try to fill that horror with words. Yeah. And if you're Ligotti, for example, you know, you write books. Yeah. If you're me, you do a podcast where you talk forever yeah. about stuff. And that these are all, I do agree with the unnameable, unspeakable, whatever perspective of it that like, yeah, this is all missing the point. That on some level, the point is silence. But I guess I still disagree that that silence is fundamentally bad that I'll sort of leave, maybe leave this, mm. I don't know, I, I don't want to cut off anything that you're saying, but maybe I'm just earmarking this as a good potential ending, that it makes me think of something, a quote that I know as being a line of dialogue from Jacob's Ladder, the movie. Um, I actually know it as mm. a line of dialogue from Jacob's Ladder sampled 
in the uncle song with Tom York, Rabbit in Your Headlights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the line being in the movie Jacob's Ladder where uh, Tim Robbins is at the acupuncturist and his acupuncturist is, is you know, he's talking about his the scary things he's been seeing. The acupuncturist says, in paraphrasing something the German Christian mystic Meister Eckhart said, you know, if you're frightened of dying and you're holding on, you'll see devils tearing your life away. But if you've made your peace, then the devils are really angels freeing you from the earth. And, mm. you know, in the case of the movie, spoiler for Jacob's Ladder, you know, it turns out that Jacob is dying in Vietnam, that his whole movie has been his sort of life review experience. And that at the end of the movie, it seems he's finally able to, you know, give up and that the the devils become angels freeing him from the earth. And there, there's a feeling that I think I and Ligotti and David Benatar and Stephen Norquist and the rest of these guys and lots and lots of other people too share is the inability to let go. Yeah. Is the inability, despite everything saying, dude, let go. Yeah. Is that we just can't do it. We're too scared. And that Ligotti comes the closest by at least being able to let go a little bit in art. I think that might be my redemption too, is, you know, I have, have something in there. Um, but that there, yeah. it seems to be that like, yes, it is unspeakable, but why is that bad? It might only be bad if you're frightened of dying and you're holding on. Yeah. Right. And I like to be optimistic about that. Like we sometimes, you know, the idea of like not being prepared for that final tearing away, you know, uh, is that scares people you know the i the egyptian like weighing your heart against the feather kind of thing you know um what that suggests is there's a snapshot when that happens and if you're either prepared or you're not which is kind of in keeping with the christian sense or are you prepared or not when judgment comes you know but i don't like to think of it like that i like to think of it in the karmic i guess what i would assume the karmic sense where it's not like a stationary position it's a progress you know like i'm i may not even be ready right now to let go. You know, I may see demons, but the process goes on. So I may eventually come to a, a point where I can I can recognize and I can let go. And that may be, you know, that may take lifetimes if if you consider that, if you're hip to that kind of thing, you know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. The, the process is a natural part of the world. So there's there's nothing that suggests that it's not a process that's ongoing, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, you're, we're not, I don't know. I don't like to think that I'm just damned because sometimes I'm afraid of the world. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, I know. And, and I think like there was something I remember like at one of the, remember at one of the, I'm definitely going to mm. edit this out, but, um, five or six years ago, um, like I hadn't talked to the whole night. And then like, right when people, when like we were getting kicked out of the restaurant, basically he was like, Oh, hey, we haven't, we barely talked. But we're like sort of very quickly, like, oh, what have you been, what are you into? Like that kind of thing. And then somewhere he said, like, I forget what this was, but he was like, oh, yeah, that was like when I realized on acid that like I can't kill myself. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, no, I mean, like I can, I could like kill this guy, but this never ends. Mm. And I was like, okay. And he's like, like, it doesn't, there's, there's no out. 
Like, I'm just in this. Like the idea of the soul or something? Something like that, that he's, he's sort of like, I could kill but I would come back as yeah. something else, and I could kill that, yeah. but I would come back as something else, and right. whatever. And he was saying, expressing this as sort of a like, yeah. oh, and then I chilled out a lot. <laughs> and I, I had that realization when I was however old, and then I stopped worrying a lot. And um, yeah, I remember thinking that, that was very that was very funny because of how number one because of how it came. We were not talking about psychedelics or suicide. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's just like it is one thing that I appreciate was that he's not afraid to just dive into that. You know, yeah, and where you're like, yeah. I don't know why you brought that up, but I'm kind of glad <laughs> yeah. you did. Like, yeah, it is relevant to something. <laughs> Yeah. But but no, then I, I think sometimes when I look at, because sometimes it, it, it's, it's in my own feeling about this stuff, but I think when I look at Ligotti and a lot of these guys, it starts to feel to me like what actually, a part of what's, what's going on in there is like a weariness, is like a deep just exhaustion. Mm, yeah. With that idea that it never ends. That idea that like, and I think this is some of what misses the point. This is this would be the ultimate thing that misses the point in like the actual antinatalist argument for me is like, well, so what do we come back as? Yeah. So what about like, yeah, you know I mean, because so then the only way that that works is is if basically the universe ends with us. Yeah. Because what's to stop me from coming back assembled with all the other billions of us who extinguished ourselves in the antinatalist dream? Yeah. To come back as a star. Yeah. And then has to, then we have to realize fuck, we're a star now? And that's a long process. <laughs> yeah, like, fuck, it's going to be millions of years before we kill ourselves again. Like, oh, God. Yeah. Like, maybe that's the, maybe that's the karma. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, now you're the oldest thing. Yeah. Like, you're one of those. You yeah, will last like, millions of years, yeah. But it's sort of this feeling that, like, you know, I think, I think Ligotti is, and a lot of these guys are right in the sense that they're, of, of seeing sort of how small our human preoccupations are yeah. like, Oh, you think this and that are what, what it's all about. And, and, and that's not it. Yeah. And that then it, it starts, to, it starts to feel like they're almost just like, and this is where the depression thing comes back in where it's like, they're too tired and they're too sad. Yeah. To deal with the idea that this might actually with their own idea. Yeah. The idea that the correct apprehension that this is infinite, that, there is no killing yourself. You can kill Dave. I can kill Wyatt. Right. But that we can't kill, we can't end life. Even if we leave reincarnation out of it, we can't kill everything. Right. As much as Penty Lincola would like to press the button and kill everything. <laughs> as much as any of these people. And a lot of that, what I'm getting at is that I think that that comes out of tiredness. That it almost yeah. starts to feel like they're just too worn out. Yeah. So then, then I think like, oh man, maybe you guys have actually Maybe this is like you you have become aware of how many lives you've lived. Oh, yeah. And you're just like super depressed. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, this again? Well, it's like, yeah, then maybe they, they need to find the approach to exercise like that. I remember one time I was hanging out with my friend and I was like, man, I'm really fucking tired. And he's like, dude, do you want to exercise? And I was like, what? And he was like, let's start exercising. And then we did. And then I was totally rejuvenated, <laughs> you know? But it, it, like in that moment, I was like, I do not want to fucking exercise. I want to go to bed, you know? But it was, and then afterwards, I was up for a lot longer because this was like in the mid-afternoon or something. So, I mean, if that's an appropriate analogy, depression makes you want to go to bed, you know? But maybe you just got to find whatever spiritual way you can exercise or something, you know? 
Or the the other option, I think, I mean, this maybe has a little more in common, with, a little more in keeping with the the sort of like, maybe these things being unspeakable or incommunicable is like, actually, yeah, like that's true and you shouldn't try to communicate them. Is It, it almost feels a little bit like if you're tired, you should rest. Mm. You know, like if you're, if, if you're cosmically worn out, yeah, maybe you should rest. Maybe you mm. should extinguish yourself, not in the way that Banatar means, not like, yeah kill yourself or or well he doesn't mean it like that but you know what i mean yeah not literally extinguish yourself but just like you don't have to write more books yeah <laughs> like you don't have to go on sam harris's podcast and talk about this if you don't want to yeah like if it seems like you don't want to do this like it seems like this whole thing wears you out so why are you doing it yeah like maybe you would feel better if you didn't do it and i don't mean like maybe you would feel better in this lifetime but like maybe this lifetime is you're just like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And that's just your reality. Yeah. Not that you're yeah. damned to it, but that you're like. Yeah. And almost that that's the way out. Yeah. This It's funny that we, it's really interesting that we, this concept, we can't find a conclusive. <laughs> like the conversation keeps going because we have reached this. Uh, what is this? What would you call it? This cul-de-sac of concepts where like you can't we can't cross that threshold it's just i think you did say like infinite cul-de-sac or whatever yeah. a while back yeah. and i really like that yeah i mean it's just it's it's it, the fact is that it's not conclusive you know yeah and that's i guess that's just that's just it man keep on trucking man <laughs> one that i'm thinking of like this does come from so if, if in my mind i think this is actually fairly this is a fairly reasonable thing that Thomas Ligotti and Alan Watts are two sides of the same coin. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that they're, they're the, uh, the dark and light version or the yin and yang or whatever of each other. Yeah. But there's another thing, like I know I've, I heard in some Alan Watts lecture where he was talking about like some story of some monk, you know, tr training with the master and the whole, the thing of like in the Zen context of like, how do you demonstrate your enlightenment? You know, how do you, whatever, and that everything this monk had sort of gathered was like, oh, it's supposed to be like spontaneous. You're like, it, it's not like a, I don't sit down with the master and tell him why I'm enlightened. I like show him that I'm enlightened. And so he's tried all these things and the master keeps being like, nope, nope, not into it or whatever. And that then this monk is walking to the, the room to meet with the master again. He's like, fuck, like I'm, I'm never going to get this. What do I do? And like a frog jumps on the path in front of him from out of the pond, out of the, the serene Zen garden pond, this frog comes and he's like, the frog, there it is. And he picks up the frog and he like hides it in his, in the long sleeve of his monk robe. He goes into the meeting, the master's like, okay, sit down, you know, what, what do you got this time? And the, the monk, like super proud of himself, like pulls his sleeve back and throws the frog out on the mat between them. And the master just looks at it and goes, too intellectual, get out. <laughs> and I love that. And I feel almost like, like that's kind of, that's the response to the cul-de-sac we're in, is that it's like too intellectual. <laughs> like you think you can get out of it by, yeah. by yeah. going this direction yeah. or that direction or whatever. And that there's always sort of this, the master being like, nope. Yeah. <laughs> and I like that, you know, Ligotti would describe him as the, the corpse-like stage magician who pulls the strings of the puppets and never lets us yeah. free from the, the void or whatever. And then on the flip side, it's like, yeah, it's a monk being like, maybe the frog. <laughs> like, no, it's not the frog. <laughs> no.
<laughs> no, it's not the frog. <laughs> it's not the no. frog. That's the name of this episode. Frog. <laughs> it's not the frog. <laughs> <laughs>